Okay, so the doctrine of the scriptures, um, the New Testament canon, part one. <clears throat> so it's, uh, it's going to be a two-part uh, study uh, on the New Testament canon because it's a lot uh, to cover. I have, this study has consumed me. <laughs> um, this week has just been, um, it's uh, been a lot of reading, a lot of study, a lot of listening to uh, thing guys who are reputable, listening to arguments on the other side of the canon. Um, so I almost died. <laughs> Not sleeping, trying to study for this. Um, but again, like I said last week, <clears throat> we'll walk through the text. <clears throat> Um, what I've um, learned, I'll try and uh, share and communicate, and we can discuss it. And um, again, this is a study on the canon of the New Testament in 45 minutes. It will not be sufficient. <laughs> so uh, what I want to do is give you at least some things to think about, um, to walk through some historical things, and then encourage you to go and do further study. Um, give thought to these things. They, they are important. Um, study the orthodox view. Study those views that would oppose what um, you may hold to, to get a better grasp on why you hold to what you hold to and why we believe what we believe. So that's the encouragement. Okay, <clears throat> continuing um, our study in the canon of scripture. Um, and forgive me, my throat has been a little weird this week. Um, last week we asked the question, what is a canon? And we answered, the word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, meaning read or measurement. It refers to the rule or rod or standard by which something is measured. Okay, so, all, so things are measured um, by the standard of the canon. It is the measuring rod. Uh, the canon of scripture is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. Um, why is it important to know this? One, because if we... Because as we come into contact uh, with those who may not hold to the Bible, there is this constant attack on the word of God and not so subtle seeds of doubt that many atheist agnostics and heretical groups will try to sow in the minds of believers. <clears throat> but we're not naive. Um, we don't have a, uh, a blind faith. We have a rock-solid, historically proven faith that we do hold to by faith. Um, but that's not apart from it being proven historically. And two, um, if we hold that the Bible is God-breathed and infallible in its original manuscripts, then we want to know what God has breathed. What has he given to and for us? <clears throat> we do not add and we do not subtract from the word. Why? Well, commands that were subtracted <clears throat> would really allow... Would, cause us not to know fully what God has said and commands that have been added would require extra things that maybe God had not commanded, Deuteronomy 4.2. And we see that in some of the wacky and strange things that some say should be added to the canon, which we'll talk a little bit about today. Uh, those writings which are inconsistent with the nature of Christ as is laid down in the scriptures and um, are simply are not apostolic. <clears throat> so there are criteria for these things and how we have what we have in the New Testament canon. So getting the canon of scripture right is therefore extremely important. If we are called to trust and obey God absolutely, we must have a collection of words that we are certain are God's own words to us. If they are in any sense um, doubtful to us, then we wouldn't consider them to have the authority 
that God himself has, and we would put them in a separate category. <clears throat> okay, that was an intro. The canon of scripture, New Testament. I do have slides, although I don't have handouts, so I hope y'all will appreciate those. Um, the development of the New Testament canon begins with the writings of the apostles. So remember that the writings of scripture primarily occurs in connection with the great acts of God throughout redemptive history. Michael Kruger, who I would encourage you to get familiar with, puts it like this. When you think about the date of the canon, don't think about it as a dot. Think about it as a line. It's a dynamic progress of God unfolding his revelation to the church, which I thought was a great point. As we saw last week, the Old Testament records records and interprets for us the calling of Abraham and the lives of his descendants, the exodus from Egypt and the wilderness wanderings, the establishment of the people in the land of Canaan, the establishment of the monarchy and the exile and return from captivity. Each of these great acts of God in history is interpreted for us in God's own scripture. And the Old Testament closes with the expectation of the Messiah to come. So Malachi 3, 1 to 4 says, Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare his, the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? who can stand when he appears. <clears throat> For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Um, he will sit as a, as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. <clears throat> So the next stage in redemptive history is the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> Truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. So there's this, <clears throat> there's this proclamation of the one who is to come, and we see that one it's not the, the one to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. We see that one is John the Baptist. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah who is to come. Who, he who was, who has an ear to hear, let him hear. <clears throat> so again, the Old Testament ends with the expectation of the Messiah. Um, and this one who would prepare the way for him. And that one was John the Baptist. So it's not surprising that no further scripture would be written until this next generation um, and these events that were to occur. This is why the New Testament consists of the writings of the apostles. It should be noted that a few New Testament books, which we'll talk about, um, Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, and Jude were not written by apostles, but by others closely associated with them and apparently authorized them. It is primarily the apostles who are given the ability from the Holy Spirit to recall accurately the words and deeds of Jesus and to interpret them rightly for subsequent generations. So this will be a question that we'll, we'll try and answer. Um, is that where I'm at? <clears throat> Let me have someone read uh, John 14, 26 for us. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, thank you. 
and then John 16, 13, and 14. When the Spirit, oh, nice. when the Spirit <coughs> comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Okay, thank you. Furthermore, those who have the office of an apostle in the early church seem to claim an authority equal to the Old Testament prophets and authority to speak and write words that are God's very words. 2 Peter 3, 1 to 2. Whoever can read. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Okay. In Ephesians 2, 19, 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the foreman. Okay. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this claim to be able to speak the words that were the words of God himself is especially frequent in the writings of the Apostle Paul. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 14. The apostles then have authority to write words that are God's own words, equal in truth status and authority to the words of the Old Testament scriptures. So last week we talked about the Old Testament canon. These words that are penned, so God speaks verbally, they're penned, and they're sat beside or in the Ark of the Covenant, which became this, this canon that we have of the Old Testament. So from what we're looking at here, the apostles um, and the Old Testament prophets' writings are on the same page by the same authority. <clears throat> so it's not surprising that we find New Testament writings being placed with the Old Testament scriptures as part of the canon of scripture. In fact, this is what we find in at least two instances. So 2 Peter 3, uh, 15 and 16 says, and count, the, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter, speaking of what Paul wrote, lumps it with the other scriptures. At this time, what does he have? The Old Testament. He links Paul with the other scriptures, those Old Testament writings. And then 2 Timothy 5, which I love. Um, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle um, an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So in 1 Timothy 5, the quotation um, says from Scripture. The Scripture says. So where is this in Scripture, this first quotation? He says the Scripture. Where is this? You shall not muzzle out the ox when it treads out the grain. It's actually Deuteronomy 25, 4. But the second quotation here, <clears throat> where's that? This is found nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures. But he says, 
the scripture says. So where is he quoting from here? <clears throat> He's actually quoting from Luke 10, 7. And it's actually the same exact words in the Greek. So Paul writing um, to Timothy here says, for the scripture says, referencing what he had, the Old Testament, um, the, the, box, the do not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborers worthy of his wages. So he links what Luke wrote with Deuteronomy and says, scriptures. There's a connection there that we have to see that's extremely important. So again, here Paul is quoting part of Luke's gospel and calling it scripture. In other words, something that is to be considered part of the canon. So this builds, we're building upon what we started last week with the Old Testament canon, and we're seeing New Testament added to, these writings of the New Testament added to the Old Testament canon and quoted as scripture. <clears throat> so what does this tell us? Well, I think that both of these passages, First uh, Peter and Second Timothy, gives us evidence that very early in history, in the history of the church, the writings of the New Testament, the apostles began to be accepted as part of the canon. Okay? So because the apostles, by virtue of their apostolic office, had authority to write words of scripture, um, and the authentic written teachings of the apostles were accepted by the early church as part of the canon. So, if we accept the arguments for the traditional views of authorship of the New Testament writings, then we have most of the New Testament in the canon because of direct authority by the apostles. Um, this would um, include Matthew, John, um, Romans, and Philemon, um, all of the Pauline epistles, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, um, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. So that leaves out five books. So if you were counting in the time I did that, you know exactly what five books I left out. Anybody know? No, I wouldn't do that to you. Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, and Jude, which were not written by apostles. And so how do these books make it into the New Testament canon? It's a fair question. That should not be the end of my slideshow. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> actually, let me go back. Okay, so... But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, so there's a context here, right? Um, Luke wasn't, he, he's not speaking uh, generally to, to all men. Um, that means that anyone can come up and say, which we've seen, anyone can say, well, the Lord spoke to me and told me this. Who's this, this, this has a context. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his, his, the, the disciples, the, the apostles. So a fair and natural question is, how can Luke pen a gospel um, when Jesus' words were not spoken to him or Mark? Um, again, John 14 has a context, and that's a fair question. And as I was going through this, I was asking myself these questions because... Again, we're, 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 trying, we're, we're, we're reasoning through these things. We're trying to make sense of this. We don't have a blind faith, but we have, I believe, a rock-solid faith in what we have in the canon. We have there for a reason. But we still need to think through these things. Okay, so Luke, Mark, um, Hebrews, Jude. Luke pins his record from eyewitnesses and travel with Paul. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 1. 
So again, we're trying to answer the question, how is Luke able to pen a gospel um, and it be in the canon? <clears throat> Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been compiled, um, accomplished, I'm sorry, among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may, be, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. <clears throat> so what's important here is, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke pins what he pins as he gets it directly from eyewitnesses. And he traveled with the Apostle Paul in many of his missionary journeys. Although Luke never names himself, several passages using the pronoun we suggest that Luke was, an, was a companion of Paul on some of his travels. Um, we see that in Acts 16, Acts 20, Acts 21. So again, the question is, how can Luke pen a gospel that when this, this, this word here was given to the disciples, um, not Luke, how can he pen this gospel? He pens his account as he gets these things directly from eyewitnesses. So it should not be counted strange that um, the apostles can uh, communicate these things, and as we see uh, with Mark, can even have pupils and people uh, pin these things for them. Okay, <clears throat> let's go to Mark. Mark is tied to Peter and was actually considered his pupil. Um, I think this uh, early church father's name is uh, Papias, I don't know. Um, I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Papias, an early church father, referred to Mark as Peter's interpreter and translator. 1 Peter 5.13 says this, um, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So there's this connection with Mark and Peter. Jude was accepted by virtue of his connection with James. You see that in Jude 1, which we'll read. <clears throat> Turn to Jude 1. <clears throat> Jude 1, <coughs> Jude 1, 1, Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. <coughs> so Luke pins from eyewitnesses, companion of Paul. Mark um, tied to Peter, um, very, very likely a pupil, a disciple, um, used by Peter to interpret, translate, pen. Jude accepted by virtue of his connection with James. That leaves <clears throat> Hebrew. So I'm, I'm, looking, I'm connecting Luke and Acts because Luke wrote Luke and Acts. So when I told you what I said for Luke, that's for Acts as well. <clears throat> the, 
The acceptance of Hebrews as canonical was argued by many in the church on the basis of an assumed Pauline authorship. But from very early times, there were others who rejected Pauline authorship for one reason or another. Um, this is still common today. Some will say there's pretty, they're pretty certain that Paul wrote Hebrews. Others will say they're not certain at all that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, it is likely that the writer was, however, a well-educated Hellenistic Jew. Hellenistic is a Greek-speaking Jew um, who had become a Christian. He was probably a second-generation believer who had come to faith through the ministry of the apostles. <clears throat> we see that in Hebrews uh, 2, 3, chapter 2, verse 3. And he was firmly grounded in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Nevertheless, um, we can identify the writer, but nevertheless, whether we can identify the writer or not, we can agree with Origen, who died about AD 254. Um, he wrote at the end of his investigation of trying to figure out who wrote Hebrews, he said this, but who actually wrote the epistle, only God knows. So the acceptance of Hebrews as canonical was not entirely due to a belief in this Pauline authorship, but the glory of Christ shines forth accurately from Hebrews and is consistent with the rest of Scripture. The essential qualities of the book itself convinced early readers as they continue to convince believers today that whoever its human author may have been, its ultimate author can only have been God himself. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to pause here and say there is uh, so much more to cover <laughs> on those points. Um, there, was, there was much discussion about Hebrews um, and, uh, in the first and second and third centuries. Um, the church in the west, the church in the east, uh, they would attribute Hebrews to um, this, this person or that person because of the writing style, um, you know, for whatever reasons. Um, so go read more on that. But, um, <clears throat> but again, these things are important to give thought to. And I'm sure you guys have questions maybe, which I'll, I'll give you um, a time in a sec to, to ask questions. But these things are important to, um, to, to give thought to because if, uh, if, if we're not thinking about this stuff and someone um, as informed as... Um, let's say Bart Ehrman, brings out some of these things, which we'll talk about in a sec, and it, it throws us off because we haven't really given thought to the word and some, the subject of the canon. It can be something that's uh, shattering to one's belief and faith when it shouldn't be. Um, we have informed scholarship and textual critics who have given thought to these things. I don't have to be a textual critic. You don't have to be a textual critic. But we have, in the faith, very informed textual critics who this is their life's work giving thought to these things, who prepare these things to give to us. So give thought. Look up Michael Kruger. Check out James White. Check out Dan Wallace. Um, read what they wrote and get it into your minds and get a strong apologetic for these things. Again, you do not have to be a textual critic, but it's good to have at least a general idea of these things so that we can honestly interact um, with them. And like I said at the beginning of last week's class, this study of the canon is just a subject you, you study and you forget. 
you know, I've studied through this before, I've taught this before, but you forget. And so we all will go through this again together um, and hopefully, you know, come out on the other side um, more confident and a little more informed, and I'm speaking primarily of me. <clears throat> okay, so continuing. So no New Testament books that were not directly written by an apostle were written by men were, I'm sorry, no New Testament books that were not directly written by an apostle were written by men who were accepted um, on the basis of their authority and the, of their direct connection to an apostle and the supervision of an apostle. So it wasn't written by an apostle, but it's written by men who were closely tied to an apostle, and, uh, and upon that authority, it was accepted as canon. Um, this brings us to the heart of canonicity. For a book to belong in the canon, it is absolutely necessary that the book have divine authorship. If the words of the book are God's words through human authors, and if the early church, under the direction of the apostles, preserved the book as part of the scripture, then the book belongs in the question. The question is of authorship by an apostle. That is what is extremely important. So I'll pause there and open it up for a couple questions, and then we'll continue. I still have a few more pages to cover. Lucy, Jeremy. When did we start calling it the Bible? At what, what century? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think you've heard, like, and I, I don't think this is true, um, but Bible basic instructions before leaving Earth. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> but um, I think uh, Bible itself means holy book. I could be wrong. But when exactly we started calling it the Bible, I don't know. <clears throat> Okay. Uh, are there any books, were there any writings that were considered for canon that were written by pupils or those associated with the apostles but were rejected and are not recognized as canon for yeah. other kind of reasons? Actually, know? we're going to get into that. Okay. Um, yes. So I'll pause on that. Right. And if I don't answer that question, then stop me and then I'll try and answer it. But I, we're going to get into that. Ellie and then... Um, I can. <clears throat> um, First Peter five thirteen, and I think there are more, but that's the only one I had. First Peter five thirteen, and then Will. Um, so, do we have any more information on how Hebrews floated into um, well, anyone's? <laughs> like where, where did it come from? <laughs> yeah, there's there's uh, tons of information. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't cover it here. Um, F. F. Bruce has a book on the canon. I would encourage you to pick that up. Um, there are so many articles. Man, I couldn't even. Yes, to answer your question, yes. Um, the can the Hebrews was looked at heavily. It was actually one of the books that there was. Um, more dialogue on, I think, apart from Jew, because there was a question about Jew. 
um, but there was a ton of dialogue on Hebrews. Um, and it, it wasn't because what was written in Hebrews was suspicious or it wasn't consistent with the rest of scripture. It was just who wrote Hebrews. The author of Hebrews doesn't say who wrote it. He, he doesn't name himself. So because of that reason, that provoked most of the conversation about what's up with, with Hebrews. Um, but from what's gathered, from what I shared, it was commonly understood that he must have been a Hellenistic Jew, someone who spoke Greek, he was in, and he was very familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, because Hebrews quotes the Old Testament over and over and over and over to point to the supremacy of Christ over prophets, priests, and sacrifices. Um, but yes. I guess one did you have all these churches that have a copy of Hebrews and no one remembers where they came from? Oh, <laughs> no, no. So that gets into um, textual criticism, textual variance in manuscripts, which we will cover in our class on the inerrancy of scripture. Um, but yes, that's a huge conversation. And it was so hard for me this week not to go there because oh, it's so important. But that's for another time. But it's such a good, my head is like filled with all these things. And I'm really trying to keep the dam from bursting. I'm taking us away, of course. I want to stay consistent with the Canada, but we'll talk about that. Amber? Quick question. Yeah. Can you tell, in a sense, who wrote the Hebrews? Because of the style which they wrote it. So for Hebrews, does it um, correlate with any other? Yeah. In the and that's what most say it seems to be tied to the writings of Paul by its style, but there, right, a lot of others, you know, some linked it to um, Apollo, some linked it to John, some linked it to Mark, some linked it to Barnabas, like, you just, (laughs) maybe he's just really humble, (laughs) I know, I know, it's like, brother, you have caused so much confusion by not naming yourself, but, um, but yes, that, that gets into the inerrancy of scripture, which all these questions are really, really good questions, and questions that I asked myself this week as I went through this study, which is why I'm so anxious to get to inerrancy, but that's a few weeks down the line. <clears throat> I'm trying to stick with the canon and keep the dam from bursting. Okay, um, where did I stop at? <clears throat> so the question of um, authorship by an apostle is an important question because it's primarily the apostles to whom Christ gave the ability to write words with absolute divine authority. If a writing can be shown to be by an apostle, then its absolute divine authority is automatically established. Therefore, the early church automatically recognized as part of the canon the the written teachings of the apostles, which the apostles wanted to preserve for scriptures. So, question. What is the early church doing as it seeks to recognize what God has determined as canon? You guys should start using the term recognize and not make or accept. Canon is canon, as we said last week, by the fact that God um, determined it is canon. I'm trying to do that myself because there is an onslaught against the church that Constantine and 325 met with men and determined what should be in the canon, and it's not true. Not even close to true. So we should, you, we should start using the term, what did the church recognize as canon? Because that's what it did. <clears throat> well, this is what the church is doing. It's looking for apostolic endorsement 
consistency with the rest of Scripture, and the perception of a writing as God breathed on the part of an overwhelming majority in the early church. Huh, well, that sounds strange. Why would I word it like that? What's the difference between a book becoming canonical and being recognized as canonical? The answer, including a book in the canon means recognizing something about it that is already true. So, again, we have a faith, but we have a faith that's rock solid, that God has preserved and can be shown to be true through actual events and historical facts, okay? <clears throat> Transitioning to the formation of the canon. At the beginning of the second century, we have four gospels going around to the exclusion of others, which I think is a Jeremy's question. By the end of the second century, there were other gospel accounts, but these were not accepted. Therefore, we have a gospel around 170 AD. At the end of the first century, there was a move to collect Paul's writings. Churches were asking other churches to make a copy of Paul's letters so that they could collect them. We know this because Clement in Rome had a copy of the letter of 1 Corinthians. In its earliest form, there were 10 letters from Paul and three more added, the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. In the second century, then, we have a gospel canon and a Pauline canon. We have two collections called the Gospel and the Apostle, which encompassed all of the writings. The book of Acts connected the Gospel to the Apostle. It provided the historical context for the Pauline epistles. It also established an apostolic authority of Paul. It is the bridge that unites these two collections to help form a united New Testament. More history. Just before the middle of the second century, um, Marcion's heresy sped up the solidifying of the New Testament canon. Marcion uh, produced his own canon, which was the Gospel of Luke and um, the Apostle, which was the Ten Letters of Paul, edited to his liking. This spurred the church to get the New Testament canon developed more quickly since it was already in progress. It was already, the process had already begun. Okay, so there's a difference there. We're not saying that there were just, there were books and they're like, okay, Martian's heresy, get them together, these. No, there was thought given to these, and again, by those um, qualifications that I mentioned, but again, just God's sovereignty, even using a, a heretic like Marcion to uh, encourage this uh, recognition and uh, having of this canon. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> we're going to veer left here, and we'll come back to the idea of an apostle in a sec. Um, I want to get some help from Michael Kruger here on the New Testament canon itself. I keep mentioning him because he's really good. Look him up. Um, he has some really helpful resources on his blog page called Canon Fodder. I don't know what a fodder is. You know what a fodder is? Okay. Just learned something new. Canon Fodder. And I want to interact with one of his articles in his blog page. <clears throat> So I was tempted to talk about textual variants, like I mentioned before, in different manuscripts because that's where my head has been all week. I told y'all I've been engrossed in this. 
Um, but we'll look at that in later classes, specifically the class on the inerrancy of Scripture. For now, staying in this lane of the New Testament canon, um, the books that we have stand out as distinctive because they are the earliest Christian writings we possess and bring us the closest to the historical Jesus and the earliest church. So it makes sense that if we want to find out what authentic Christianity was like, that we should rely on the writings that are nearest to the time period. This is uniquely true when it comes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the only gospel accounts that derive from the first century. Some scholars have tried to put the Gospel of Thomas in the first century, but in the end, even uh, unbelieving textual critics agree that these four gospels are the earliest accounts of Jesus that we possess. Oh, crew. Okay, so Kruger goes on to give two, two qualifications. First, he says, it should be noted that there are disagreements about the dating of the New Testament books. Some, criti some critical scholars have argued that some New Testament books are forgeries written in the second century. Meanwhile, other scholars have defended the authenticity and first century date of these books. Even if these debated books are left aside in our discussion, we can still affirm that the vast majority of the New Testament writings, including the four Gospels, still remain the earliest Christian writings we possess. Second, some may point out that um, what First Clement is a Christian writing that dates to the first century, and it is not included in the New Testament canon. So some may ask, if you're saying that your books are from the first century, um, why wasn't First Clement included? Well, it is true that First Clement is from the first century. Um, the consensus date of First Clement is around 96 AD. This date is later than all our New Testament books. The only possible exception is Revelation, which is dated at least around 95 to 96 AD, but some date Revelation even earlier. Even so, this does not affect, he says, the micro point we're making here. He says that if we are, if, <clears throat> if we are not arguing, we are not arguing here that the books are canonical simply because they have a first century date. Other Christian writings existed in the first century that are not canonical, and perhaps we will discover some of these in the future. Our point is not that all first century books are canonical, but that all our canonical books are first century. And that is, the, and that is a point worth making, he says. So are you guys following that? <clears throat> There were a bunch of books, and all this is getting technical. There were a bunch of books written in the first century, but not all those books are canonical. But all our canonical books were written in the first century. It's just a, a point of discussion. Um, because again, you hear a lot of, um, a lot of thoughts, some well-reasoned, some not, against the biblical books in the New Testament, being from other centuries and being Adelaide and all these different things. It's just not, it's, it's just not true. Okay, a couple more pages. Continuing with the qualifications of an apostle. The two qualifications for being an apostle were one, having seen Jesus after the resurrection, after his resurrection with one's own eyes, thus being an eyewitness of the resurrection. Was Paul an eyewitness of the resurrection? We'll talk about that. Um, the second qualification was having been specifically commissioned by Christ as, as his an apostle. So the fact that an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord with his own eyes is indicated by Acts 1, 12 to 22. 
Do I have Acts 1, 12, 22? I hope I do. I don't. Let's turn to Acts 1, 12 to 22. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 to 22. <clears throat> All right, who can read that for us nice and loud? Acts chapter 1, verse 12 to 22. Thank you. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day to turn their way. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share of the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, but falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called a town called Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Okay. Um. 22 as well, yep. Well, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Okay. <clears throat> so, again, the point here is that um, two qualifications had to have seen the, the Lord after his resurrection and has, um, have to have been specially commissioned by Christ as his apostle. So Paul uh, makes much of the fact that he did meet this qualification, even though it was in an unusual way. We see that in Acts 9, 5, and 6, and Acts 22, 15 to 18. Um, we also see it in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, where he is um, defending his apostleship. Um, <clears throat> these verses combine to indicate that unless someone has seen Jesus after the resurrection with his own eyes, he could not be an apostle. Now, I'm going to just read quickly through some of these verses concerning uh, Paul, just so you have an ear for it. Um, and he said to them, who are you, Lord? And he, and he said to him, who are you, Lord? So this is Paul talking to Jesus. Um, and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So um, conversion of Saul, knocked off his horse, sees the Lord, this conversation starts happening. Um, and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and uh, you will be told what to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. <clears throat> Paul seeing the risen Lord, the Lord appearing to Saul, Saul specifically, which authenticates his apostleship. Um, Acts 26, 15 to 18, I'm just going to read quickly. 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and in, in, in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to, delivering uh, you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. <clears throat> Again, the authenticity and confirmation of Paul as an apostle. Um, the same qualification, um, specific appointment by Christ as an apostle, is also evident in several verses. First, though the term apostle is not common in the Gospels, the 12 disciples are called apostles, specifically in the context where Jesus is commissioning them, sending them out to preach in his name, Matthew 10, 1 to 7. In choosing another apostle to replace Judas, the 11 apostles did not take the responsibility on themselves. So it wasn't who they liked best, who was cool, who told the best jokes, who had the fish and the bread. It was, does this person, well, I'll just read it. <clears throat> they, didn't, they didn't take responsibility on themselves, but prayed and asked um, the ascendant Christ to make that appointment, which he, in the casting of lots, they determined he made. Um, were there others who were commissioned by Christ who we don't read about? others who were commissioned as an apostles who we don't find in the canon. We'll find out next week. This is part one. Part two is next week. <clears throat> so next week, we'll talk about the qualifications of an apostle and how that connects to the New Testament canon of Scripture. All right? So, <clears throat> again, there's so much more reading to be done on this. Um, ask, ask questions of, of the text questions of the study and we will we'll, we'll try and answer them um, but that's all I got for now any questions before we close out before I pray